Hello, everyone, and welcome to In the Spotlight, Good Speed Musicals podcast, where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Fling, here on the artistic staff at Goodspeed, and I am so pleased to be joined by the supreme of my heart, the dream girl of dream girls, although she is white, Annika Kupin, Goodspeed's artistic associate and resident dramaturg. Hi, Annika. How dare you erase my history as the little known fourth member of the dreams. <laughs> well, there's only one way to intro you when the title of the show we're diving into is the title of the show we're diving into. Um, and everyone doesn't really know what that is because we have our new segment at the end. So would you like to tell everyone what show we'll be diving into this episode? Yes, indeed. The teaser, if I recall correctly, was that this was a show where the uh, leading lady dropped out of the project because she was mad that her character was killed at the end of act one. Um, and then she came back and they rewrote it. Actually, it's a little more complicated than that. That happened uh, more than once, but <laughs> yes. uh, the teaser was uh, for the musical Dream Girls and Jennifer Holiday left the project after um, they originally were gonna kill off Effie White at the end of act one, but they didn't, spoiler alert. Um, so yes, we were diving into Dream Girls, the fabulous musical by Henry Krieger and Tom Ian from the early 80s that is pretty unique in the history of Broadway and also pretty fabulous. We are dream girls, boys, we'll make you happy. I love it. Ooh, ooh, ooh. I'm excited. I'm excited to dive in. Um, Me too. And I think that brings us to the speed test. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. Where I have to attempt to summarize the musical Dream Girls in under one minute. And I'm a little bullish on my possibility to do that this week. I gotta be honest. I'm feeling a little confident about it, but we'll see. I, it could really go either way. <laughs> I know. I feel like uh, I, I too am confident that you'll be able to pull this one off. This is not a show that has a ton of plot, although it does cover quite a span of time. And quite an interesting plot that it does have, but it's not. I think it, I think I can sum it up in a minute, but we'll see. I think you can too. All right. Are you ready? Let's go for it. Okay. Here we go. Three, two, one. Plot. It's Amateur Night at the Apollo. We've got the Dreamettes, uh, a young group of sisters, not sisters, but a group of friends from Chicago who want to make it big. And uh, basically they lose the contest because Curtis, their soon-to-be manager, bribes the the host not to pick them as the winner uh, and puts them behind Jimmy Early, who is an up-and-coming uh, music star, and they end up being his backup singers, basically. Uh, uh, the uh, Effie and uh, her brother Cece writes some music for our, uh, Jimmy Early. It gets stolen by white artists, and so they decide to create a new sound. They Jimmy Early becomes super successful. He ends up on 20 his seconds. The Dream Girls, uh, they now become the Dream Girls at Curtis's um, insistence. And uh, Dina, who was not usually singing lead, um, becomes the lead singer because she's a little more easy to put into the public eye. They fire Effie. Uh, and then it's all the drama that ensues from there. And that's it. I mean, basically, that's it. I don't think I missed. I mean, there's Jimmy has a relationship with Laurel, who's the third dream girl. Um, Effie gets fired. Maybe I actually did a really bad job. I don't know. <laughs> well, you, I think you did a really excellent job of getting us to the end of act one. Yeah, but you know, I thought I was, but act two kind of like they're successful 
and Effie's not. They're going to try and steal Effie's song that Cece wrote for her. And Dina's like, no, I'm done with this. And then they're reunited at the end in what seems to be a happy ending as they are going to the dream girls have come to an end, but they're all happy and friends again. Yes, it's it's quite a happy ending. It's kind of an oddly happy ending. Although with some some moments of darkness that I think are uh, left out a little bit of the show, like what happens to Jimmy Thunder early and uh, Curtis really becomes a villain uh, after being someone who seems like maybe he's a good guy in the beginning. So interesting. I would I was gonna say I would quibble with that. I kind of I think there are hints from the beginning that he's not a good actor. And not, yeah, but, but like I mean, meaning good actor in a good person. Right, right. But I think he doesn't, he could be someone who sort of has questionable motives, but helps them along, which he does. I mean, he does kind of make them, but man, he really turns out to be a snake. Yeah. And that will bring us to Why God, Why? Why God? Why today? Where we talk about the big idea of the show and the idea that really connects all the characters and drives the force of the narrative. And for Dreamgirls, this is a little tricky because I think it is a show that is primarily driven by its plot. But the idea or ideas that I think really are at the center of all of the characters and their various arcs and journeys are the ideas of loyalty and betrayal, both to oneself and to others, and the idea of autonomy and getting to pick and choose your own destiny and own who you are. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think um, sacrifice is a big uh, theme in terms of how much are you willing to sacrifice about um, who you are and how you act and what your place is in the world um, in order to achieve success. Um, so there's a whole bunch about sacrifice and ambition and just ultimately being who you are, whatever that may be, I think is the kind of ultimate lesson of the show is just embrace who you are um and have faith in who you are and even if that's not as clear a path to success it's probably a better path to success or even just you know uh you know success in the mainstream doesn't necessarily qualify as success i think is also part of its critique right that sure you know is it success if you're sacrificing so much of yourself and your relationships in order to climb to a career height that uh that you think you wanted, right? The, the idea, especially, um, you know, with this recurring idea of like showbiz, 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 that is this musical motif that, that comes back a few times when characters have their demise or large dramatic events happen. I think um, this, this critique of the entertainment industry, um, particularly when it comes to race in this country, is, uh, is all kind of wrapped up in all of this. Yeah, absolutely. And ultimately, I think it's the sort of um, personal relationships that ends up being the most valuable thing for all of these different characters. Well, and even, you know, the the story of Dreamgirls or the very like uh, sentence version of kid group who wants to be successful, they're going to hawk their record and like this now kind of trite coming of age in the music industry story that I think we've become accustomed to. Um, is really like this is the first that really does it and I think in some ways it's the best because it invests in those personal relationships between the characters and you do buy that they mean something to each other and you believe in this family that they've created 
Um, whereas I don't know that I feel the same way about some of the other um, now predominantly jukebox musicals that follow that trajectory uh, story-wise. But I do think that like for for how shockingly little book exists in a show that is so plot heavy, I do buy into the love and relationships between the characters. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a it's a fascinating show that way. It's there's so much music in this show. A, only some of it qualifies as what we classify a musical as, which is like only some of that music is actually really doing um, heavy dramatic storytelling, um, which is usually the classification for sort of a traditional book musical is the songs have to carry dramatic weight. And yet you really do get a sense of who these people are and, and what their relationship is. Also, is it's almost entirely backstage. I mean, we never really get interior moments with these people other than, you know, snippets of their conversation when they're about to go on stage or they've just come off stage. Like it, we really, in some ways it's a sort of like, it, it never goes that deep into their lives because it's always this transitional music world. But at the same time, we feel like we do. It's, it's remarkably structured. Well, and yeah, to echo that with the structure, I mean, in some ways, the most uh, relationship development we get and the most human non show business side that we get of these characters is the very, very beginning before they're really launched into success. And then once they're behind, once the, the dreamettes are behind the behind Jimmy early, there are hardly any more book scenes. They're on tour and they're doing things and it's music, 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 which is an interesting subliminal message within the show that the entertainment industry can take over your life. Yeah, it truly can. So Annika, why don't you go ahead and take us back to before and tell us about some of the origins of Dreamgirls. We can never go back to before. Absolutely. So this is an interesting one to dive into because uh, there are some things which are pretty clearly the inspiration for this show, even though they're not officially the inspiration for this show. But just to start uh, with the writers, so we have Tom Ian and Henry Krieger. So Tom Ian, who wrote the lyrics and the book of Dreamgirls, is really a fascinating figure. Um, he was a writer who mostly wrote experimental theater uh, that he also would direct off off Broadway. He had his own theater and he was a really one of those generative artists, especially uh, during this time. Um, he was a central part of the 1960s neo-expressionist movement off off Broadway. Um, so he really was a, a notable figure in this corner of his world, but that is a very different world from Broadway musicals and big commercial hits. So the New York Times said, had this quote about his stuff, which I loved. His plays are known for emotionally grotesque material combined with sharp satire. And the things that he wrote were really kind of edgy and out there. And when you think of sort of off, off Broadway, you do sometimes think of this kind of crazy out there stuff. And that's, that's really what he was doing. The play he was best known for was one called The Dirtiest Show in Town, which ran for two seasons off, off Broadway, and then had an off Broadway run and then one on the, the West End. And it kind of is exactly what it sounded like. It was full of the things that you're not supposed to put on stage, nudity and filth and all this stuff. Um, but it hit a chord. It just hit a nerve with people and people sort of loved it. Um, one of the things I found sort of interesting about this was that he directed a television version for Showtime, um, which was the first made for cable television movie. <laughs> Who'd have thunk? 
so he had written this show and before they made it into a TV movie, he decided that he wanted to turn it into a musical. Um, so to turn it into a musical, he paired up with a young writer named Henry Krieger, who was a composer, a musical composer. And they together wrote a musical version of The Dirtiest Show in Town, which starred Nell Carter. And it really was Nell Carter who inspired the two of them to want to write a show about Black backup singers. And that would eventually become uh, the show that we know as Dreamgirls now. But the other thing that was interesting about this is what the show ended up becoming was really, I mean, it, it's about a, an era in America and, a, and an era in music that itself is kind of fascinating. Uh, which is basically that the era of these girl groups that Dreamgirls spotlights, these Black trios of really teenagers, um, was really a fascinating transitional moment in American culture. After the war, there was such a baby boom that there were so many teenagers just in America. And it was one of the only times that pop culture was dominated by teenagers. They were these teenage groups made up of teenagers singing pop songs. And one of the things that I found very interesting was that at that point, there was a real difference between quote unquote black music and white music. Um, the R&B charts were very much black music. The pop charts were very much white music. And sometimes a black artist would have a song that would become popular, but it was very, very difficult for black artists to actually cross over onto the white charts themselves as artists. It was much more common that they would have their songs kind of stolen by white artists and made very popular by the white artists who were then famous. But when these girl groups started to emerge, they were some of the first black artists who were able to become famous as artists um, on the pop charts, um, these young kind of teenagers, these groups. So it was a really interesting moment because what you were seeing is this kind of intersection between black culture and white culture, but all wrapped up in this youth, this youthfulness and this sort of combination of these innocent uh, songs that seem to be about very um, innocuous things that, that were actually applied to a lot of the things that um, were not so innocent at the time. So like Take a Letter, Mr. Postman was a very famous song that came out during Vietnam. And so people interpreted it as like a waiting for a letter from your boyfriend who was fighting in Vietnam. Um, even the lyrics themselves were pretty innocent or the other famous one is Dancing in the Street, um, which was happening during all the, these these riots and this immense civil rights movement. Um, so Dancing in the Street was kind of a metaphor for this um, stuff happening on the streets, these people fighting. So anyway, so so they chose a really fascinating era of music. And also they chose a really fascinating story, which is the story of the Supremes. Although none of the writers have ever fully admitted that this was about the Supremes, although we'll probably talk about this later. It seems very, very clear it's about Diana Ross and Barry Gordy Jr. at Motown and the Supremes. But that's a that's a different thing. So anyway, so yes, you have these this interesting um, off off Broadway downtown funky strange corner of the world writer Henry Krieger, who is someone who just loved musical theater, was a composer who's new to the game, and the two of them uh, want being inspired by Nell Carter to to write a show just about backup singers. So that was kind of the beginnings of it. And at that point, 
it was called One Night Only was the title of this project. And the the titles of the show that would become Dream Girl, it goes from One Night Only to Project Number Nine. Project Number Nine, which I love. Then, Sounds like the right. District Number Nine with aliens in South Africa. What and then to Big Dreams, then Dream Girls, two different words, and then finally Dream Girls. I mean <laughs> Good change. <laughs> yeah, solid, solid work. Just kind solid of work. moving forward with the title. Um, but they went ahead and pitched this idea to uh, Joseph Pap-, Pap at the New York Shakespeare Festival, uh, who at that point uh, had just helped launch a little um, known musical that was a, a modest little hit called Chorus Line. Um, it, of course, was not a modest hit at all. It was an absolute sensation, singular, they might say. And Ooh. <laughs> I didn't even script that. Um, <laughs> um, and he gave them a six-week workshop to explore the material. So after that, they continued to work on the show and ended up uh, pitching the show to Michael Bennett and Bob Avian, his assistant at the time, uh, who were the proprietors of 890 Broadway, which is one of these spaces that really holds a lot of historical theater lore and uh we're not, I won't get into it if you're interested in some of that stuff. There are many great books on Michael Bennett, um, and there's a lot of that history chronicled in Razzle Dazzle by uh, Michael Riedel. Uh, and it's a, an interesting, interesting world, um, Michael Bennett's life post-chorus line. But he had just kind of come off this flop, uh, major flop, called Ballroom, that he was really excited about, but he was really looking for his next project. And they pitched the show to him, uh, for him to possibly produce and obviously rehearse at this space that he owned. And he said, sure, you know, go for it. Uh, but at this point, they had already lost Nell Carter as their star of the show and cast a then little known performer named Jennifer Holliday in the pivotal role of Effie. They had two workshops at 890 Broadway uh, directed by Ian and choreographed by Michael Peters, who was actually brought onto the project by Michael Bennett. And Holiday left after the first workshop she did and was replaced by Jennifer Lewis. Um, both of these workshops were presented to Bennett and Bennett decided after the second workshop, which was really the third workshop, that um, he would take on the show, but in the role of director and co-choreographer with Michael Peters. So with Bennett at the helm, it really was not going super well. Uh, and he ended up letting the team have the show back for the last two weeks of that third workshop. They presented it again, and he was like, okay, I still think there's something here. I'm back on board. And they ended up having a fourth workshop where they were really just at the table, uh, and multiple sources describe it as basically a radio drama workshop where they just worked on the book and the plot and the story. And he rehired Jennifer Holiday. But when she returned, she was upset to find that the show had really now become focused on Dina and the story so much resembling The Supremes, although, again, they would never admit that that is what it is, probably for legal and liability reasons. Um, and she ended up quitting the fourth workshop two days before a major presentation for Gerald Schoenfeld and Bernard Jacobs, effectively known as the Schuberts, the most powerful landlords of Broadway theaters. Uh, and this presentation, some people, you know, I'm not sure the sources differ on this. Some people say this presentation happened on the stage of the Schubert where Chorus Line was currently running. Uh, and then some accounts have it as like the seventh floor of 890 Broadway, which is like under construction. So 
not quite sure where that penultimate presentation happened, but it happened and they were like, yeah, we're into this. We're behind you. Do it, Michael. We'll help produce it and invest in it. Uh, and after that, they really became clear that they needed Jennifer Holiday. So Bennett called her and they fixed things up uh, between themselves and really had it out. Uh, and finally, as she recalls, like talked to each other for the first time, not at each other. Um, and he agreed that uh, they would fix up act two and bring her back in act two, because at that point the, the character only existed in act one and that they would stop making her look homely with her costumes and build the role back up to the star role that they thought it should be. So they played their out of town tryout at the Schubert in Boston where they were for nine weeks which is kind of crazy. Um, yeah. And they developed the show a ton during that time. And they got really positive reviews in the local press and the word of mouth was starting to buzz in New York about it. But they really continued to press forward and make changes for the show. At one point, even cutting One Night Only, which uh, the company revolted because the company loved it. And so Bennett put it back. And... At this point, Effie still wasn't in Act Two, but audiences loved Effie so much that one of Bennett's friends came and said that they really needed to bring her back because that's who the audience is waiting for because they loved her so much after her iconic end of Act One, operatic, dramatic song, And I Am Telling You, where she refuses to believe that Curtis is going to leave her. And at that point, their unborn child, although... I don't think that's really made clear at that moment. It is definitely hinted at. Uh, the movie version kind of makes it a little more explicit, frankly, but I digress. So they come into New York uh, to the Imperial Theater where they continue to make some changes. And this is when they implemented the change of Effie rejoining the girls at the very, very end of the show for the final number. This is when this, the happy ending really entered the picture. So when it opens on Broadway, uh, it gets kind of mixed reviews, frankly. Um, a lot of the reviewers were not as uh, taken by the show as audiences were, with one extremely notable exception, which is Frank Rich at the New York Times, who was absolutely behind the show from the get-go and thought it was one of the most immaculate stagings of a new musical he'd ever seen and gave a glowing review in the New York Times, which really sealed the fate of the show in terms of its finding its New York audience and gaining that critical appeal. But Technically, the reviews were mixed, but uh, Frank Rich has never backed down in his love and appreciation of Dreamgirls. Yeah, and it, it did pretty well. It opened on Broadway December 20th, 1981, and it ran for almost four years. It was nominated for 13 Tony Awards, and it won six. Um, it did win Best Book of the Musical, got a lot of performance awards, but it did not win best musical itself that went to nine the tommy tune creation that ended up playing right next door at what was then the 46th street theater uh now known as the richard rogers and i think it's important to talk about this tony battle because it's in the modern era of tony campaigning and the fight for the tony for best musical this marks a new era in terms of what that is and what that looks like uh, it was, we're now into an age where the Tony Awards were being broadcast and were a big public press event. And the stories that are recounted of the fierce battle between Nine and Dreamgirls 
there really was a line in the sand and it became a, a cultural touchstone for Broadway as old theaters were being demolished and new theaters were being built and the politics of the Schubert's versus the Nederlanders, Tommy Toon versus Michael Bennett, and these two competing ideas of the future of Broadway, essentially. And it really came down to this battle between Dreamgirls and Nine. And I, I just, I think it's important to mention that because it, it, it marks a real turning point, I think, in the culture of Broadway and in what the 80s on Broadway end up looking like for American musical theater right before we get into the real British invasion of all these mega musicals. So I, I think it's important to note it just because, and there are great stories about it from many, many people and books written about it and all that stuff, but it is an interesting uh, horse race between those two shows. I, but also it's because Dreamgirls at the time, we should say, Dreamgirls at the time was the most expensive musical to ever be produced on Broadway. It was capitalized at $3.6 million and paid off its initial investment in, at that point, a record 34 weeks. So there was money behind this battle because the Schubert's did not want to lose the massive investment they had made in Dreamgirls. Yeah. Oh, the innocent days when a super expensive show cost $3.5 million. Now, now, <laughs> now we'd call that a steal. If you now, could. yeah, now would be the bargain of the century. God. So, um, you know, so I, 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 and I shouldn't say that they were necessarily erecting the Marriott Marquis, but it's all about the Marriott Marquis, the Helen Hayes, and they, the Schubert's were really on the wrong side of the, the politics of the moment in terms of the culture of Broadway. And they made Dreamgirls kind of a touchstone issue, and they did win more Tonys than nine, but they didn't win Best Musical. And... Bennett never really, got, they all kind of never got over it, in fact. It was, it's a real sore spot um, for the people involved. Yeah. So the interesting thing is, after the original run, um, it, and it was very successful and uh, influential, there were a fair number of tours that have happened, including one that went out, and then it was really too big to be financially sustainable as a tour, so it kind of came back to Broadway. So it was a sort of return more than a revival. Um, but other than that, it has not had a major revival on Broadway since its original production, which is kind of bonkers considering how popular the show is. Um, there is a production in the West End, or I should say there was one, uh, directed by Casey Nicholas, starring uh, Amber Riley of Glee fame that was rumored to be making its way across the pond. Of course, that was pre-COVID. So, so we might see something in the next few years, but um, an oddly underrepresented show uh, considering how influential it, it was and how beloved. And of course, there's the movie, um, which was made, it was, it was in the works for many, many years, and there were lots of rumors about who was going to star in it, including Whitney Houston and Lauren Hill were both people who were mentioned as uh, starring as Dina, which is kind of always interesting. It's always the stars playing Dina. It's, it's never the stars being nominated or being um, rumored as Effie, because Effie is such a specific part. So a little bit harder to put beautiful glamorous stars into it. Um, but in 2006, it was finally made um, a, a partnership between DreamWorks and Paramount, directed and adapted by Bill Condon, who had done the screenplay of Chicago, who was just a brilliant guy. And um, it was a big hit. Beyonce starred as Dina. Um, Jennifer Hudson starred as Effie. And 
Andy Murphy and Curtis and um, Jamie Foxx were in it, Anika Nomi Rose, my lady. Um, so it was really, it was a really solid musical adaptation. I think one of the best um, in the past few years. And it earned 155 million in its international box office. Um, Jennifer Hudson won an Oscar. And interestingly enough, it was uh, the most expensive film to feature a mainly African-American cast in America's cinema history at the time. It was about $80 million, which is kind of amazing when you think of just how much is spent on movies um, in general. So the fact that, that it took to 2006 for a movie that's mostly about African-Americans to, to have a big budget like that is uh, kind of remarkable and sad. But I do think it's important to note, similar to the Chicago revival slash movie, I, the 2001 Actors Fund concert of Dreamgirls, I think is a really important moment in the show's history in that, yeah. that original production was not fully captured on its um, vinyl album that was released because of the nature of what you can do on vinyl. And so uh, it was the Dreamgirls Actors Fund concert starred Audra McDonald, uh, Heather Headley and Lilius White as Effie, uh, and Norm Lewis, Darius DeHaas, Billy Porter. It's a phenomenal lineup of performers. And it was one of the first things to happen in New York after 9-11. And I think it was a real cultural touchstone again for Broadway and the like, we're back, we're here, we're strong. And I think it was one of those like swells of, um, just I think it's an it like reminds everyone that Dream Girls is a show to care about, and I think it puts it back on the radar for people to ultimately make this movie adaptation possible. Yeah, and God, that cast! My God, I mean, it's a pretty fantastic recording. It's a dream cast, if you if you would say. Boo! I'm booing my own. <laughs> <laughs> So Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside Ain't No Party. What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. All right. So for Dreamgirls, a show that has just a score that is one gem after another, and which is so much music, it's just nonstop singing and nonstop songs. Um, I'm going to dive into Ain't No Party, which is Laurel's big number in the second act and Laurel's only big number. She's the character who's happy to be back up in the dreams. She's kind of the peacemaker of the show. So this is her time to shine. And man, does she take advantage of it? And do we get to see a lot about who she is? So um, I'm going to dive in. Now, just FYI, I'm going to be playing the original Broadway cast recording with the divine Loretta Devine singing this, but uh, they've done something interesting for the original cast recording of Dream Girls, which is that they sort of tidied up the songs, sort of, um, not in terms of their content, just in terms of they've they've taken a show that has a lot of free flowing transition, um, this song especially, and they've kind of made them more compact songs. Um, so what we're going to hear here is not exactly uh, representative of how this number plays out in the show when it really just kind of arises right out of a fight um, and then basically goes into one at the end too. It's a really more fluid number. It's not so clearly beginning and ending, although you can see in this cast recording 
they also didn't really end it. Um, so with that caveat that this is sort of what it sounds like in the show, but I'm going to stick with this one because it's a little bit easier to just uh, treat as its own unit here, even though um, it's not quite that. So if you want to go listen to it, uh, fire it up. Uh, if you also want to listen to Heather Headley sing this number in the um, Actors Fund concert, which is fantastic, you can get a bit of a, a better sense of how it flows in, in the show. But if you want to listen to the original, uh, Loretta Devine, come on back and then we'll dive in. All right, so uh, this number is, as I said, the big number for Laurel in the second act. At this point, it's the 1972 Democratic Convention. Laurel and Jimmy have been together for seven years, but Jimmy is still married, and that is a sore spot, clearly, for Laurel. Um, it's so interesting when you talk about the show, the songs in this show, because as we've talked about, there's almost no interior numbers here. There's really nothing that you would expect in a conventional musical where it's someone in their house, someone backstage, truly away from the stage, not performing at all, um, having a, an interior moment that's entirely intended to be an interior moment. This, this show is almost entirely live and in front of us. Um, almost all of the numbers are either on stage or backstage. Um, and we do get interior moments. I mean, certainly we have songs like I'm Telling You I'm Not Going, which is um, what we would call this. And this number is certainly interior. But even this one feels like it still could be on stage. All of the songs in this show feel like they could potentially be songs sung by one of the musician characters packaged as a single released to the world. It's so interesting in the way that it handles music in that way. Um, and so interesting that choice that they made, never, ever, ever to let the stage be far away, even though what we're seeing is the performing element of it, and only occasionally the kind of notion of what is around being a star. Um, so a very specifically located show. So as I said, backstage, 1972 Democratic Convention. Um, this is after Laurel has performed, but before Jimmy has, and they have this confrontation. So. Uh, let's dive in. All right, so even before she starts singing here, um, this music is really interesting because we get this fantastic vamp, this really like full of energy. There's something kind of dirty and dark about it. Um, it sounds kind of angry and it sounds a little bit raw, but the other thing that's really interesting about it is you get that really kind of punky bass line, um, which is not the kind of music that we associate with Laurel and the Dreams because funk is a different kind of music than uh, any of the characters have been singing. Maybe it's where Jimmy uh, wants to be a little bit, but we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But um, it's certainly not what we think of as Laurel. It's not where we replace Laurel. Um, so to have it here is kind of an interesting thing. It's showing her own personality as, as a person and also her connection to Jimmy, that this is definitely her number, even though it's their fight, but it's still kind of manifesting in this style that, that we associate with him and which is gonna be the style of the song that he's gonna do later. Um, so we just get a little bit more shadowing on who she is. And then we get that great kind of, uh, wall of brass that hit 
coming in, um, which really lines us up for what's about to happen, right? If that vamp is the anticipatory vamp that's showing us that we're about to have something happen, that brass chord is really uh, amplifying it too. It's like she's about to make her entrance into this song and we are ready for it. It is her time to sing and she is going to be angry. Right, so it dives right in and keep in mind again this is coming right out of an argument so in the in the number it's just going to be almost seamless that they're fighting they're fighting and suddenly she's singing this you don't even necessarily know it's an it's a it's a separate number so she starts right in with uh that kind of high angry yeah i knew you were married when i met you which is what you do in an, in an argument right she's she's cutting in to make sure that she's got the stage and then she's she's pulling it down with these lyrics about uh, with the actual argument. I knew you were married when I met you, told myself that's the way it's gotta be, but after all these years, and then she kind of switches into this other mode um, after this kind of angry sting to get his attention. Um, after all these years, the best of my life, you can hear it kind of mellow out a little bit to something a little bit sadder. There's kind of a mournfulness in those things. She honestly is thinking that these seven years that she spent with Jimmy, which are the best years of her life, um, have kind of been wasted. And she said, my life has become a catastrophe, which is quite a word. You can feel the drums kind of are there, but the music drops out a little bit to allow her to, to really land that line. Um, my life has become a catastrophe, which is such a you know stab in the gut for him. But the music really wants us to be able to hear that line. So now we're getting into the meat of it here. It's not just the same argument they've had again and again. It's not just, you have to tell her, I'm tired of waiting. She's realizing how much time she's wasted. And not only is it no fun for to be perpetually waiting for him, but she's also angry with herself for not having more ambition beyond him. Um, it feels like she's realizing in this song that she has just staked so much on him that she's realizing what a mistake that was because he's never coming around and this is a little bit bigger than than just being frustrated with him it's it's really she's taking view of this entire moment in her life Oh, how great is this? Um, she's switching gears a little bit again to something a little bit more imploring. Don't I give you good loving, sweet daddy? And this is kind of the most we've gotten to see of their relationship. We really have never, ever spent any time with just the two of these characters on their own. We've known that they've had an affair for a long time. We've known that they've been together, but that's kind of happened um, a little bit. I mean, offstage is not the right word to use because everything in Dreamgirls is offstage. stage, they're playing with that all the time. but. Uh, now we're getting a glimpse of what they're like when they're alone together. Don't I give you good loving, sweet daddy? And of course, that sounds like all of those songs uh, where a woman is is imploring a man not to leave her. But this it doesn't sound like that in the same way because she's not really begging him. It's not, and I'm telling you, I'm not going. Uh, Effie's big song about like, no, you're, you know, 
even though she's she's more aggressively saying there you're not leaving me um it feels much more emotional and desperate here laurel is is saying you're going to do this you're going to do this but it also kind of feels like she's much more in control she's she's not kind of emotionally begging him you get this great thing where she says this about you know don't i give you sweet loving whenever she lets you slip away but then she goes right into a big ultimatum like you're going to tell her and you're going to tell her today and if you're going to give someone an ultimatum i hope that you can do it with drums like this because they're really badass ultimatum drums great because this is kind of like a freestyle moment here um you get the thing that she sang before about uh wishing she had more ambition but then she she riffs she really riffs on this situation because remember they're at a party so the whole background to this is that she's in her party dress she's offering him champagne for their anniversary this is their anniversary but then she's just kind of like owning this in a real way she's she's going off on this kind of musical uh, freestyle moment. She's, her voice sounds amazing. She's really letting loose. She's doing a thing that Laurel has never done in the show, certainly never in song, because of course, if you're the backup singer, then you never ever get to do this kind of uh, freestyle riff thing. You have to sing exactly what you're supposed to sing, but this is Laurel's chance to take center stage. And she doesn't want to do it in the context of the dreams she doesn't want to be the the lead of the dreams but she can't she wants to do it in her own life and that's the difference um that's kind of the theme of the second act to dina goes through a similar thing you get that little piano riffing moment like the the music is also having a lot of fun with her they're they're fully on her team this is just she's unleashed this beast and the music is coming with her and it's just such a joy to hear it from her and We've been waiting for her to do something like this because she's had to put up with absolutely everybody in this show. She's been the peacemaker between Dina and Effie when Effie and Dina are having their drama. She's always the one who's sort of uh, asking everybody to stop fighting. And now she gets to be angry and have her moment. Um, and what I also love about this is that this is quite some foreshadowing about what's about to happen with Jimmy. This is a fight backstage. Um, this is between Jimmy and Laurel at the end of the song, which we're about to hear what, what the original cast recording has as the end of this cut, which is not quite what it is in the show. Usually there's, there's more discussion between them. And Jimmy finally says, I got a, a show to do and goes on stage. He's about to have a breakdown. He's about to reject, um, the kind of smooth, uh, sound that Curtis has wanted him to sing, the much more crooner, Nat King Cole kind of like uh, Perry Como sound. And he's going to break out into his personal kind of James Brown anarchy, uh, this, this thing. And so Laurel gets her own freestyle moment here, which kind of is um, foreshadowing what 
Jimmy is about to do when he's going to take his own freestyle moment. Of course, they're extremely different. Laurel is having her freestyle moment, which is allowing her to kind of blossom fully as this person who's no longer going to just wait um, or build her life around this man. And Jimmy's going to do it as a person who's going to kind of throw off all of this pressure that's been put on him to be something other than who he is. So in some ways, both of them are going to live free as exactly who they are, and the music is going to help them do that. Uh, but it's interesting to see in this moment uh, between these two people who we really haven't gotten to see that much of, that we're seeing the parallels between them. We're seeing that there is something that really unites them, aside from the fact that they're just this this duo that happened to be in this relationship. They are They are similar people in a lot of ways. So let's listen to what the cast album has as the very end. Now it's been seven years and it don't take the smartest to realize that even though my man throws confetti in my face, it still don't make it no party. This ain't no party. It ain't no party, man. My mama wants to know when you want to marry me. If you want me in your life, you better make me So the interesting thing about that is, as I said, that's really not how it goes in the show itself. They um, have more of an exchange. Jimmy says, what do you want me to do? She says, marry me. And then Jimmy says, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. You know, this it's, it becomes more of a thing. So I think they may have honestly just let, I, I don't know where those lyrics came from. They may have just let Loretta Divine do some true freestyling at the end of the album, but um, we get to see at least uh, the spirit of the end of the song. Um, and I just want to give a shout out to the line. Now it's been seven years and it don't take a smarty to realize that even though my man throws confetti in my face, it still don't make it no party because that's such a great, great way to say that, um, the, to represent that sort of, it's, you know, it seems like a thing that would be really fun and celebratory, but it's, it's ultimately him gaslighting her in a kind of aggressive way, throwing confetti in my face. Um, so she really, we can tell here that she's really, truly done with him as indeed she will be, um, after his song, she will confirm that they're through. Uh, but what a, what a fantastic chance to get to know her better and hear her really unleash her voice, um, in a way that, you know, she's always been the backup singer. We, we haven't really heard. So we get a lot more about her. We get a lot more about who she is with Jimmy, um, and we get a really fantastic setup for what's about to happen with Jimmy. Laurel's support is the last thing that's taken away from him um, that's going to prompt this kind of descent uh, that he's going to undergo. I mean, of course, a self, a self, in the case of Loretta, it's uh, self-inflicted because he could have easily remedied this in a way that um, with Curtis, it's a lot more tragic that he's really not allowed to to make the music that he wants to make. But it's a great number and it's, also super fun like every song in the show it sounds like if you heard this on the radio it would be as the kids say a bop do they that say that maybe it's a slap i don't know some kid has to correct me as to what kind of song this is but in any case it is a great song and a really fun song and just a anthem of owning your own life and not waiting around and i think it's great 
And that brings us to one of our favorite segments, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the issues, both internal and external, that the show faces. So I think it's important to start off this discussion with Dreamgirls is obviously a show about black people and black artists that was not written by black people. Um, the only member of the creative team that is black is Michael Peters, who was co-choreographer. Uh, and I think it's important to look at that and examine that uh, in terms of how that original team approached the material. And there are a lot of indications based on the research and quotes from Michael Bennett, uh, Bob Avian, and the various Michael Peters, all of Henry, everyone involved that, um, you know, they did believe that Dreamgirls is not centrally about being black, it's about being human, um, that uh, they wanted to create a black musical that wasn't necessarily about being black, as about being people. Um, but obviously race is something, and cultural assimilation is exactly what is at the heart of the show, and obviously written by white people and led by predominantly white people with obviously an all black cast uh who i you know by all reports there were many tensions within the rehearsal room and i don't think anyone wasn't heard out in any of their thoughts on it but monica how do you feel like dream girls deals with racial tensions in america particularly as a show written by white people yeah i mean i think it's a it's a really important discussion to have about the show and i think just in general separate from dream girls uh this is a huge problem with the American musical theater canon is that there are so few shows, um, really hardly any at all, that were written by people of color about people of color. Um, it's just a, a big flaw when you're talking about uh, the history of the American musical theater. There's there's not a lot and there should be so many more. And I'm, I hope with all my heart that we are entering a time in which um, that field widens for people who are not just white writers and that um, would benefit really everybody in the whole wide world because representation is so important um, on every front. So that being said. Um, well, and I do, I do think it's important to say that there are definitely shows written by black people about the black experience that did end up on Broadway, but they certainly did not become a part of the canon in the exactly. sense that shows about black people written by white people have become a part of the canon. So I think that's exactly. an, uh, an important thing to stipulate. Yeah, that's definitely a, a, a distinction that that is important to make. Um, so with that said, um, I think Dream Girls actually does a pretty good job of diving into some of these issues. It's a very interesting script when you read it because it is, I mean, it, it always is moving. The show is always moving. The show is always, um, these little scenelets, these little snippets of scenes are happening between these musical interludes. As we said, they're backstage, they're um, in rehearsal, they're at a press conference. It's all very kind of public in a way. So, so the fact that we get so much story um, is interesting, that we get the story that we do get because there's, there really aren't a lot of moments for us to sit and, and watch this. Um, these characters express their inner feelings in a true way. but. Um, I think there's a version of the show that is a lot safer um, that they could have written where it, it just is about a group that happens to be black and the management that happens to be black. And it's about wanting to be successes and what that takes. But, but the script is very clear about um, 
the idea that success, quote unquote, as, as Curtis defines it, especially that mainstream American success um, really requires uh, sacrificing what makes these people black in some ways that that they have to kind of like become whiter basically to become popular um you see it with replacing effie who has this kind of like really heavy soul voice is not a traditionally beautiful woman um with dina who is a much more sort of palatable uh beautiful um softer voice uh figure and then you also especially see it with jimmy who um has to kind of tone down what makes him him and become sort of more pericomo like um in in this world where it's also very clear periodically that that white artists are taking their music and making it popular which is what of course happened in real life so and with jimmy the the tragedy of jimmy ultimately is that he his breakdown is basically because he's not really allowed to be himself and um when he does kind of break out of his own uh bubble and and try to reclaim this identity uh which is never explicitly said to be connected necessarily to his identity as a black performer but it certainly is a lot more kind of edgy and spiky and involves a lot more musical styles and performance styles that were kind of more located in an r&b soul performance than than this kind of soft pericomo white crooner style which is what curtis wants him to be um it ultimately kind of kills him uh jimmy that he's not allowed to sort of be who he is um although that's not made explicitly clear in the show although in the movie they do they do make it clear that he he does have a tragic end he does die of a drug overdose on the road um it's clear that he he kind of collapses as a person. And it seems very clear that he's he's had to do, he's done that partially because of um, this compromise that he's made that Curtis has forced him to make um, in order to court a kind of, you know, mainstream slash white primarily audience. I think there's a version of the show where they could have just sidestepped these issues and it could have been a little bit more like, oh, they're just, you know, it's about success. It's about being a, a star instead of specifically what success means, which the show makes clear is about being sort of in this, in this white oeuvre specifically. Um, so I think that those are all uh, invaluable elements to have in there. And I think they're certainly um, ones that you could play up um, in a way that I've heard that the, the revival in London does do, that it really does dive into this notion of Black performance having to sacrifice um, their particular musical styles and heritage in order to achieve success. And I'm, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that it's in there. I'm so glad that that is an option when you're doing this show, that you can, you can really uh, dig your teeth into that topic. Anyway, so, so that is all to say that uh, I don't think it's a superficial show. I don't think it's a show that doesn't touch on these issues. I think it very much does. Um, and although I do think the ending is a little bit surprisingly pat, it kind of resolves in a very happy way. I think that it it tells a little bit of, as much as it tells any story in this show, it, it also tells that story. Um, so I do really admire it for that. And I'm very glad that they did that. Yeah, I mean, and I think ultimately it's, it at the end, I, I think while it is very hunky-dory and maybe not the most realistic, I do think it, it paints a picture that ultimately these girls are connected by who they are and their 
familial ties to each other and that that does matter and that who they were originally matters and they are on their way to getting that back, I think is ultimately what that um, ending means, at least to me. But I think you also bring up a really good point that I, I think is a secondary critique of the show, which is that it's structured, that it, it moves too much, that there is there aren't moments of stopping and a breath of, oh, a little, you know, a scene to kind of cleanse a palate. Like it does go, 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 which is a critique that has been leveled at it from day one uh, when it landed on Broadway. Uh, and that while the show almost was entirely choreographed, the whole thing was a dance piece with um, towers that moved around the stage and, and the continuous action and the way that uh, Michael Bennett really set out to create a cinematic staging of a backstage musical and that was certainly achieved with the the towers that moved around the stage and crossfades and swipes and some of the famous ones being um effie at the end of her big song at the end of act one sits at the dressing table and reaches out and you're gonna love me and you know scream yells in the most fabulous iconic way me and is pulled back as the dream like pulled upstage on this palette as the the new dream girls come in front of her with big costumes that are like completely blocking her as a show curtain comes in and they're doing their song on new year's eve and suddenly we've just wiped her away and we have the the new dream girls and I, there are instances of that all over the show um or in that original staging in particular with the original version of one night only that then becomes the disco version and and all that, I mean, it's, it, so that structure that it's always moving is something that is kind of uh, a critique that's leveled at it. The show doesn't stop. And uh, when they took it on tour and restructured, they didn't restructure the show, but they tour, they reworked the top of Act 2 a little bit and made it less of a massive production. And a lot of people felt like they saw a lot more of the heart of the show and the relationships of the show with a little bit of that pared down production. So uh, I guess the, the question is, in the, in the modern context of Broadway, Annika, do you feel like the show does move too much, or do you feel like it is just an efficient musical that does what musicals are supposed to do? Well, it's so interesting, because I think, um, as a musical, this this one really operates it in its own way. I mean, as we said, you know, some of the songs tell the story. I mean, certainly, and I'm telling you I'm not going, is, is a internal character moment for sure. Um, but a lot of them don't. A lot of them are sort of the pop songs that this this uh, group is singing. They're sort of the non-diegetic, diegetic thing about this show really kind of has it both ways. Um, so that is all to say, uh, I think the key with a show like this and something that Michael Bennett was certainly um, a genius at is you have to know when you're doing this show that storytelling exists not only in the music, um, because in this show it does and it doesn't, but also in things like that wipe, in things like transitions, in who's coming on stage when. There's a lot that's, that clearly is gonna help you tell the story in these things that I think for a lot of directors are, are just kind of, um, you know, the, the things that happen to get you to the next scene. But in a show like this, when you don't have a ton of scenes, 
um, you have to make sure that every moment on stage is helping you tell the story that um, you're, you need to tell. So I think if you have a smart director who can, can do that, can recognize that, um, it doesn't have to feel too fast and too sweeping, basically. I think you will get those story moments that you need to get because this is a, this is a lean and mean script for sure um, in terms of uh, text not in terms of music it's a it's a fabulous and lengthy show in terms of music but um so yeah so i think i think you can get it in there for sure but i think you just have to have um the right team who can kind of see all of that smartly um because it's a real it's a real challenge with this one so this is definitely a show also when you're talking about performers you know effie white is always a part that is hard to find you hear about who's playing effie it's kind of one of those parts where it's like you can either knock it out of the park or you can like not handle it at all it's like it's mama rose basically it's another one of those musical theater parts where it's like you have to have a titanic force playing effie white um you have to have very very smart performers who can bring the storytelling to the surface in the way that this show requires. You can't just have someone who sort of is gonna, um, you know, sing the songs and speak the lines and not like feel it like a raw nerve because, you know, they don't have a ton of time to register in terms of um, spoken dialogue, but they have a lot of time to register as performers singing a song, as people watching from backstage, as whatever it is, there's always a lot going on, but you have to make sure that you have really, really stellar performers to handle it. So that's what I would say about that. It's not, this is not a show that's idiot proof. I hate not to use that phrase, but you know, it's like, it's not a show that you can just kind of put on its feet and no matter what, it's going to be relatively successful um, because it's tricky, but I think it's, it's valuable and rewarding when you can, when you can nail it. I totally agree. I totally agree. I think, you know, it, it, it requires a smart team and a smart group of performers to navigate and to understand that that's a challenge that, that it faces and to, to embrace that challenge and not just try and ignore it, I think is, is probably the lesson or the, the, the idea behind that. And the last discussion topic I think in this section is, I think it is hard to argue that this show is not impacted, inspired by referencing, alluding to, telling, the story of the Supremes and Diana Ross and Barry Gordy Jr. and the whole Motown thing. I mean, it's it's very clear that that is an inspiration for the story and the creative team denies it, denies it, denies it because they do not want any litigation. Um, but like, you know, how, how do we square that circle or how, how do we make sense of that when, when dealing with a show? I mean, it's super tricky. It's, it's super tricky. Like, you know, I, I mean, I agree there is something sort of that feels shady about saying like, no, 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 it's not the Supremes. If indeed what they're trying to do is just kind of avoid a lawsuit. Um, but at the same time, you know, there are differences in the story, even though it's, there are so many similarities. It's, it's really, really hard to say it's not it's not Barry Gordy and Diana Ross and Florence Ballard, who was the Effie White character, um, who like Effie White originally um, died tragically at a young age. Um, 
So, so there are so many parallels, but at the same time, you know, not officially tying it to that story allows you to do something like keep Effie White alive if you want to, to, to make the changes that you need to. And I think there is something about um, keeping it a little vague and a little bit sort of quote unquote inspired by rather than um, officially based on that gives you a little bit more leeway, especially when you're dealing with living people, um, because dealing with the life stories of living people is very, very tricky. And um, it can really change the story you want to tell. Um, so I get it, but at the same time, I'm like, come on guys, come well, on guys. And I'm definitely like sympathetic to the argument that they didn't set out to just tell the story of the Supremes and change the names and like, but that the Supremes in that story become kind of emblematic of the Motown movement and they become emblematic of the sound and the the moment in music history and that era and therefore you can draw inspiration and you can draw like certain uh you can draw an apocryphal story almost off of that story and say like here is a summation of so i i, I can see both sides of it but there are so many blatant yeah. parallels and blatant oh exactly this happened that it it does and particularly when dealing with quite dramatic events in yeah. any life it's it's hard for me to not it's hard for me to buy that they didn't take some dime store biography of the supremes and just put it on stage and put it on stage and that brings us to our favorite things these are a few of my favorite things where we talk about some of our favorite things about dream girls so annika First things first, who is your favorite character in Dreamgirls? I have to say, I have a great fondness for Laurel. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Why is that? Why Why do you love Laurel? Because I think it's fascinating in this show um, that, you know, your, your main group here is a group of three women and you have this kind of power struggle, sort of like who's going to be, who's the right kind of star um with Effie and Dina I think it's fascinating to include a woman who is not ambitious in that way um that she is seemingly happy the entire show to be a member of this group but to, but have no qualms about not being the starring member of the group and I think that that's that's a kind of subtle portrait that a lot of similar things don't don't ever get that you know it's possible to be in showbiz, it's possible to be in music and not actually dream of being a star yourself um, in a way that Laurel seems to. And I, I think that's a really great character to have balancing it out. And obviously she, I, I think her, her relationship with Jimmy is also really fascinating um, uh, because she kind of is pl playing back up there too in a way that she is ultimately not able to do um, and not happy to do. Um, but I always just I, I always like her. I always like her as a as yeah. a secondary character. But I, I just think she's a really interesting character to include in the show. And also shout out to Anika Noni Rose, who was great in the movie. Even though she had to wear very high heels because she's very small. <laughs> yeah, I did feel uh, badly for her, that little fun fact. Um you know, it's hard for me. I mean, I think it's hard to say that my favorite character isn't Effie, just because Effie, I mean, come on. It's like one of the great roles ever written for musical theater. Who who doesn't love to like vicariously live through 
the performer who performs and i'm telling you i mean it's it's absolutely iconic so and and just her little pop-offs and her one-offs and like things i i just i it's diva fabulousness so i'm i gotta give it to effie absolutely that's an excellent choice and it's funny i was re-watching some of the movie and they made a very smart choice when they're first performing which is that she's kind of taking the stage and you're like oh yeah she she's gonna have trouble being in a group you know it's like it's like the movie makes an interesting point about like she's not really great in a group <laughs> like she isn't the right person if you're if you're gonna do a group that's a, a trio like that as opposed to dina who's a lot more um who doesn't stand out as much i mean she's aretha franklin like yeah. that's you know i think it's gonna be aretha not diana ross yeah for sure so what's your favorite song in dream girls Annika? Oh, there's so many good songs. I, and I will say, I do have a great fondness for Love You, I Do, which is the song that they wrote for the movie, um, which is very kind of peppy and poppy. Um, but I love Step Into the Bad Side. Oh, that's a great choice. That's a great yeah. choice. Yeah, I think it's so fun. Um, it's so specific. I mean, in some ways, it's one of the more musical theater numbers um, in the show uh, and certainly does handle a lot of the storytelling in terms of the decision to to make some questionable moral choices in order to achieve success but it's just a fun fun number and it's usually the, one of the more choreographed ones in the show too which is always fun uh what about you what's your favorite song michael i you know i really actually love the title song and i sing the title song to myself a lot um and i, I just it's one of those things that it one of those phrases of music that gets stuck in my ear a lot so it's i I want to say that, but it also like, I mean, you know, in keeping with my, Effie is my favorite character. I mean, and I am telling you is such a powerhouse. Like, how can you not, how can I not say that's my favorite song? Like I, you know, it's like it, that's, that's tough. Cause also like, you know, even like one night only those like solo version, but also the like disco version. Like I, you know, yeah. but so I think my ultimate answer goes to, and I am telling you, but special mention to the title song. Cause I sing it probably the most of the entire score. It's this a really uh, quotable, singable score. All right. So, what's your favorite miscellaneous thing about Dream Girls? You know, I mean, I would say that this is. I, I'm a big fan of costume dramaturgy. Um, just in general, I I like to find uh, meaning in costumes, and this is famously a show that usually has some absurd number of costumes not a lot of sets usually usually this is a show that has almost no real fully realized sets just a lot of mobile units that move around because there are so many transitions and things but um you really can't do the show without those dresses that those girls would wear and those wigs that those girls would wear and there's something so thrilling about seeing that come to life but also watching um the success of Dina and the band um, through the costumes that they're wearing, watching them go from the kind of like homemade, badly fitting costumes that they have in the first number and the wigs that they have to turn around backwards because somebody else is wearing the same ones to the kind of shiny, glamorous things later. So um, I think I saw online somewhere that one of the tours um, that happened of Dreamgirls had over 460 costumes and 205 wigs. Um, so you just have a lot of stuff, but I will say I, I love looking at those uh, 1960s uh, girl group costumes and I love watching them tell the story and uh, they're gonna be my pick. 
I think that's great. I think it, that's a great pick. I, I guess all of my picks are kind of in the relative norm of like, and I am telling you, but the Tony, the original Tony performance is one of the great Tony performances complete with Jennifer Hall holidays, very dramatic step in the middle of the song that really is just because she has to get over like the cable that's going to pull the palette back, which I'm obsessed with. Uh, but also just the memes that have derived out of that song and that you're going to love may, although that is like really just off of Jennifer Hudson's version because Jennifer holiday is giving us a legitimate me sound. Um, but also my other favorite, which is July, July, I never been so thin, which just makes me laugh because of summer bods, but also like it does kind of sound like July, July sometimes. So those, those make me giggle. And that brings us to one of our last segments, Corner of the Sky. Gotta find my corner of the sky. Where we talk about this show's place in the musical theater canon. So, Annika, what do you think is Dreamgirl's Corner of the Sky? I would have to say that the way that music functions in this show, um, in some ways, it's it's kind of a spiritual granddaddy of jukebox musicals, um, even though it is not a jukebox musical, as we said, but it's so um, located and oriented um, in those musical performances of that particular musical style. And the fact that you really never ever get too far away from a stage on which someone is performing um, is, really something that's uh, unique about this particular show. And also, I mean, even though obviously um, it's not overtly the Supremes, but it's sort of the Supremes-esque, I think it really ushered in an era of um, Broadway embracing um, the stories of other musical forms and um, in some ways using that musical style to tell a story in a slightly different way. Yeah, I think it also is it's the way just it moves as a show and it's kind of continuous action and the entire choreography I think is pretty uh landmark and I think is the precursor you talk about being a precursor for jukebox musicals but I think it's also the precursor for a lot of these uh film to movie adaptations that are just continuously going and going and going I think you know the first example I think of is Hairspray and how Hairspray just trucks along and you're either on board it or not, um, but it just is song after song after song and the go, 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 go nature of some of the Joy Machine shows that have come out of the, the last 20 years. Um, but I also think, you know, we didn't talk about it a ton. We've mentioned it various times, but I also think the design of this show is really impactful in a way that we don't um, talk about as much with the, the sparse scenery that moves and can wipe and do things and the kind of general atmosphere it provides but then letting the costumes bring forward the characters and their development as you brought up in your favorite things but i do think that just that approach and completely seeding control of movement and space to directors and choreographers i think is something that wasn't quite mainstream or successful until dream girls and i think that is an important like point in its in its you know, corner. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, also too, like at this point, we, we've said it at the beginning and even though the show is not written by 
people of color to have a cast that yeah predominantly people of color featuring their strength and featuring like styles of music that are written to showcase them and to really tell their story not to take anything away from other pieces that are certainly impactful in the 70s and other other pieces but dream girls does hold a very particular place i think in being widely accepted as what it was and not trying to, you know, I don't know, maybe that's not the right way to say it, but I do think it's impact on the storytelling of black stories is important. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I probably should have made this point earlier too, but it, there's great power in the fact that there's really almost no white people on the stage at all. And that their presence is really only as the kind of milk toast artists who steal the the work of the people of color you know there's no like token good white person on there it's like it is a story about black people pretty much entirely and that's in tremendously valuable and powerful even if it sucks that it's not written by those same people but sure well that about wraps it up for our deep dive into dream girls but i'm telling you I'm not going just yet because we have one more segment. It's our brand new segment, What Comes Next? What Comes Next? Where Annika gives us a little clue about what show will be in the spotlight next episode. So Annika, what is next episode's clue? For our next show, here's the clue. This show had a leading man who needed to learn the accordion for the show. And he did so by traveling to several countries with it and naming it Olga. Famously, everything should be named Olga. <laughs> I don't know. I think all accordions should be named or Olga. As far as anthropomorphic names for accordions, I think Olga is extremely appropriate. Well, that does it for us. We'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals, produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. Our podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of the Sennheiser Electric Corporation, the Burry Frederick Foundation, Webster Bank, and the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit www.goodspeed.org. See you next time!